Hello, I'm Jackie Mignot. And I'm Zach Robichaud. You're listening to A Podcast Made Flesh. Conversations about an embodied faith. We're coming to you from Treaty 7 territory, talking with all sorts of people about the Incarnation. We're not reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation about the central Christian belief that God became flesh. For German clergy, I've mentioned a couple of times, they were attracted to this. Hitler said things that led them to believe. So the Nazis were talking about a national renewal. Mm-hmm. Hitler made Hitler said things that made the pastors believe that he was calling them to come help him in a national and moral renewal. These two things, national renewal, moral renewal, intertwined. Yeah. That, and that they could help him renew Germany. So they would bring, in a sense, their spiritual resources to help with the national renewal. Welcome back. Today we're talking to Dr. Kyle Jansen, another doctor we get to talk to. Uh, He is the Chair of Humanities and a Professor of History at Ambrose University and author of Faith and Fatherland, Parish Politics and Hitler's Germany. So why not talk to him about the Incarnation? in particular, Dr. Jansen is a an expert. He probably wouldn't call himself an expert, but he knows a lot about more than us. <laughs> more than us about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian from um, Nazi era Germany. And in particular, we get into a little bit of um, an essay that Bonhoeffer wrote called "After Ten Years," which he wrote uh, well into uh, the tenure of Hitler. One of the things we were really curious about and wanted to talk to Dr. Jensen about was what does it look like um, to embody a faith? And when that goes wrong, when it does not look like the person of Jesus, what are the circumstances around that historically, culturally? Um, and in some ways, we can look at what happened in Germany not too long ago, 80 years ago, right? Um, and, and really ask some hard questions about what does it mean to live out a, a, a Christ-like faith? What are the circumstances when that doesn't happen? And we get into some some interesting uh, territory talking about the church in Germany. Um, and then when we talk about Bonhoeffer, just talking about how he saw that faith needed to be embodied in real-life humans and, and then how he resisted uh, really the, the excarnation of, of the Christian faith in Nazi Germany at that time. Yeah, and really swapping out Christ for mm. the state, and yeah. you know what what is actually being embodied and celebrated, and and lived out. So yeah, we recorded this shortly after the Capitol riots, and so that does inform our conversation a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we know you'll enjoy this. My name is Kyle Jansen. I. Uh, teach history at Ambrose University, where I'm also the chair of the humanities department and uh, oversee a number of academic programs. I've been with the institution for over 20 years since it had, since part of it had its roots in Regina. And we've been here in Calgary and area um, since 2003. So 18 years now. (laughs) I remember, um, 
when it used to be in in an office building downtown mm -hmm. and I would go up there to use the library yeah <laughs> yeah that was the first years in Calgary uh downtown uh in four floors of an office building yeah and uh, with a residence in a nearby hotel and oh my goodness so we've uh the people those of us who started there we don't take our canvas for granted at all. We love our facility. Yeah. It's a lovely canvas and we're so grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Fun. That's awesome. You know, in, in, in thinking about this, um, I know you, you gave us some, some points to consider. And yeah. um, can you just give us a little bit of background about Christianity in the Nazi era? What, sure. what the church looked like there? Sure. Sure. So... The German churches, and I, I will say, I'm going to speak primarily about the Protestant churches to, with you. There's a whole, a whole other discussion we could have about Roman Catholicism under um, Nazism, and that's driven largely by the Concordat, an agreement between the church and, and the Vatican, and or the Nazi state and the Vatican, and and all that happens within the Catholic Church. But I'm I'm speaking more, and my research is more on the Protestant side of things. And, and, and really, the Protestant churches, ever since the time of the Reformation, going all the way back to Luther, the Protestant churches were attached to the state. They were state churches. Um, rulers took authority over the churches during the Reformation time. And ever since then, clergy had been paid by the state. The state collected church taxes. And sort of loosely oversaw the affairs of, of the churches in this kind of throne and altar relationship, as they called it. Okay, and that and was like Luther, Luther had had to uh, seek alliances from princes just to kind of yeah, get protection. Yeah, exactly. Right? Was, exactly. And if you look at yeah. the way that the Reformation unfolds in a place right. like Saxony, he, uh, it's simply that by about 1526, 27, um, officials from the, the prince's uh, government start to go around and check up on the churches and then and, and gradually they just begin to administer the external affairs of the churches and out of that develops a kind of a government bureaucracy that 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 relates to to those churches and so it's a it's this the catch word is this idea of throne and altar mm. and that lasts right up until the first world war wow when after the war the german empire collapses the kaiser goes into exile and the churches that throne and altar relationship is broken and the churches are suddenly unmoored mm. and they were very worried um and especially because the new government in this this weimar germany as it was called was dominated by socialists and Catholics, and and they felt uh, many in the many in the Protestant churches felt like they were in, in in deep danger, and this was a sort of an existential crisis. Even though, truth be told, they actually didn't lose really any of their rights or support, and in fact had less oversight than before. Their, their situation was actually, <laughs> if anything, better. But but they didn't feel it that way. They felt like they were in a crisis. Um, they were worried about the rise of socialism and communism. They were worried about new, the new sort of secularity of society, um, the rise of cabaret culture and 
more liberated women and things like that. And um, so later in the 1920s and into the early 30s, as the Nazi movement and other conservative movements are on the rise, um, there is a response uh, and an attraction to that among uh, Protestants and especially Protestant clergy in many parts of the country. So that kind of that kind of takes us up to the situation, and then and then as the as the Nazis come to power, there's a couple of things happening. First, within the churches already in by 1931-32, there's a new movement emerging called the the faith movement of the German Christians. And it's a confusing thing because they're just called German Christians. And that sounds good. Who wouldn't want to be a German Christian? But German Christians were actually a particular pro-Nazi group. They wanted essentially to fuse Protestant Christianity with Nazi ideology. They wanted a, a church for Germans, a church that would be fitting for this new Third Reich that was emerging as Hitler came to power. And Hitler himself said some things that sounded pretty good. He said the two confessions, Protestant Catholic, will be pillars in the new Reich and things like that. And and sort of made a lot of noise around what we would call family values, right? Traditional land, families, um, order, responsibility, and... um, and there were some nods towards religiosity too. So for many, uh, this seemed like a really uh, attractive thing. And so initially, especially, uh, many, many Christians were, were very excited about the coming of Nazism. What, what um, I mean, we, everyone knows about Hitler. What, what was it that uh, defined Nazi ideology? Like you, you mentioned some of the kind of how he t- tied it into the German church or the German Christian movement. but Yeah. Well, in terms of the roots of Nazi ideology, it's, it's very much an, a, a negative movement. Um, Nazism was anti-Western, anti-communist, anti-capitalist, anti-liberal, anti-democratic, anti-pacifist and maybe above all, anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And for, for Hitler, the, one of the key ideas at the heart of all this was what he called his basic principle of the blood. And this was all about the, the notion of the purity of the so-called Aryan race, mm-hmm. the German folk. And folk is a word, I mean, it means nation or people, but it's a bit more than that. It means it has sort of blood connotations like racial community is another way to say it. Anyway, he felt that the Germans or the Aryan na- uh, nation was this um, su- superior, um, enlightened, uh, culture bearing, um, idealistic um, uh, uh, racial uh, race. And um and really his movement is about cultivating the purity of that race and then allowing and giving it, creating the conditions whereby the German racial community could, could flourish, grow, expand, and conquer. 
Right. And uh, an, an, uh, conquest is always sort of in view here. It's very social Darwinian. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very much that this idea that the, that the races of the world are, are locked in a kind of life and death struggle. And he really did see it that sort of uh, uh, starkly. starkly yeah. And, um, and that, that really that, that to make Germany great again, the trick was to create the conditions for this, this pure uh, German race to flourish, to flex its muscle and to rule the world. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that's heavy. I, I'm having trouble listening to this without thinking about the United States. I'm really having trouble not jumping oh. in and saying, "Oh, like 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 this." Oh, like this. It's very <laughs> so, parallels are stark, <laughs> to borrow your word. <laughs> so it's very hard not to do that, right? And I I think that oh. I mean, historians for the past four or five years have been very involved in this discussion, particularly people in my field. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the problem is sort of that in the general culture, it's so easy to make very simplistic comparisons with Nazism and so on. And, you know, it's that that's not particularly helpful. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the first instance, within American history, there's a long, a long tradition within American history itself of, of issues of nationalism and racism and, right. and xenophobia and, and, and well, it even manifests manifest destiny as America yeah. needs to come into its own and yeah, yeah. God's so ordained sense, people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a sense, you don't need the Nazi analogy. And yet, <laughs> so many of the ways in which um, politics have operated, the the extent of lying, the attacks on the attacks on institutions, mm. um, the the division of society, um, the the multiple messages and the confusion created, the mm. the the whiplash kind of uh, politics where things are happening so quickly, you can't keep up. Mm. A lot of those things, you know, regularly remind me of elements of the history that I've studied. It's not like it's a simple one-to-one parallel, but there are lots of elements of this kind of extremist politics that are familiar Mm -hmm. and maybe more problematic and more, more central to our discussion is the way that Christians have responded is actually uh, very similar. Yeah. Well, that's, so that's a great question because as you're talking, you kind of mentioned how um, the Protestant clergy were yeah. attracted to, um, you know, these things that sounded great, like the family values and, um, you know, all of those things. So was there congruence between the clergy who are like hey i think this this is going our way you know if we align ourselves with and then and with the regular people who lived beside their neighbors like was there a difference there or what what happened with that in like the local congregation yeah no i think i mean clergy obviously played a leading role that's that's if anything, in a society that was a little bit more hierarchical, 
a little bit more traditional. If anything, clergy will have carried more weight perhaps than they do even now. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, certainly uh, clergy themselves were quite attracted um, to Nazism and, and so, were, so were so many of their parishioners. Um, maybe a way to think about this. So let me just describe a little bit about what happens in 1933 when mm -hmm. Hitler comes to power. And then maybe that helps explain what the clergy are thinking. And yeah. then we can talk about what happens in the parishes too. Yeah. So just in terms of the overall events within the churches. So when Hitler comes to power, he makes these positive statements about the role of the churches in the new Germany and so on. The German Christians are all fired up because they are supportive of this new regime. And there's a couple of things that happen. They, um, uh, start campaigning for uh, a number of things. There's a move, for instance, to apply, um, there was a government measure called the Aryan Paragraph that, that very quickly, very early in the Nazi reign, in the first couple of months, started to weed out Jews from the civil service, mm. from government positions, and so on. And there were many in the German Christian movement who said, we need to apply this in the church. Now, there were only a handful of, of Protestant clergy who were of Jewish descent, but um, uh, still, the principle is there that, that, that someone who would be a Christian, uh, because of a Nazi definition of their racial identity, right. uh, so here's where, where Christian, like religious identity, Christian Jewish, and racial identities, German Jewish, kind of get confused. But anyway, so some of the German Christians were trying to push um, Jewish Christians, particularly clergy, uh, out of their ministry. The German Christians were also very keen to establish a single Reich church, a single national church under a Reich bishop. Um, this would be a kind of hierarchical, centralized church that would mirror the hierarchical centralized Nazi state under this leader, Hitler. And so a man named Ludwig Müller became the Reich Bishop and they tried and almost succeeded in establishing a Reich church. Meanwhile, that year, there were also church elections that took place. The day before those elections, Hitler came out on the radio and supported the German Christian movement. Mm. And they swept to power in 25 of the 28 regional churches, including the old Prussian Union Church, the really big church that was about half of Germany. So sh long story short, the German Christians come to control the, uh, the institutional Protestant churches mm. for the most part. Right. And out of that comes fairly soon radicalism and then opposition. Mm. So the German Christians became more and more radical. They, they start talking about, you know, a church of, uh, of, for German blood and, and so on. There's a famous event the, in November of 1933. They have a big rally, the German Christians do, in Berlin, in the Sport Palace, a big arena, 20,000 people there. And they're hearing speeches about the idea of a German church and, and so on. And the one speaker gets up and starts railing uh, uh, against, uh, um, uh, well, 
what he what he says should happen is that um, uh, the Old Testament should be gutted. So should the writings of the Rabbi Paul, and you know, in a sense, the Bible should be retooled for this German, yeah, for this German uh, uh, church. Mm. And uh, and he says some other nasty things too. But at any rate, um, that was quite shocking to many people who were who were conservative, who were even welcoming of the Nazis, and and but all of a sudden, like the extent to which this new racial ideology was was being harnessed to reconfigure Christianity, that was quite alarming. And and the German Christians lost a lot of their support at that point. And at the same time, this is when people like um, Martin Niemöller come onto the scene. He was a prominent pastor in Berlin who created this thing called the Pastors Emergency League. Mm. And they they pledged to stand by the Bible, to stand by the traditional Reformation confessions of faith. They pledged to serve, uh, that they wouldn't uh, have Jew- have uh, Jewishness be an issue um, that would divide their church and so on. Mm. And, oh, uh, let, yeah, let me, and, and that leads eventually that. to the confessing church and the opposition uh, wow. to the German Christians. And, and this is sort of, that's sort of, these are sort of the two camps that, that duke it out throughout the the Nazi period and in what we call the German church struggle. When when this guy gets up and starts trying, you know, talks about having to like take Judaism or Jews out yeah. of the Bible, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Like he's he's really taking their uh their beliefs and pushing it and, and really expressing it in its fullest. Mm-hmm. And until then, like they're embracing the kind of the drippings from it. Um, without really understanding what the meat is, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. That once it's once it's yeah. actually realized, it's more of a catalyst towards cri- criticism, and people start leaving it. Yeah. Um, in in the uh, article or the the essay you you asked us to read um, after ten years, which we'll get to later, but yeah. I, I can't help but bring it up now. It's you know Bonhoeffer talks about. Um, you know, evil defeating itself. Yeah. And in this sense, like I, I see that as an example of evil defeating itself. Like that's, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's not difficult to see the, the fruit of that. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the measures grew quite extreme. I mean, there was essentially an administrative takeover in various churches, this attempt to create a single Reich church. I mean, at one point, um, a, a sort of a commissar within the church pulled a gun on to be, I mean, it was like, they really, they really were quite uh, aggressive and they suspended people and, you know, and, hmm. and really tried their best to sort of, and their argument was always that this was just the external structure of the church that they wanted to, to conform to the new Nazi age. But of course it wasn't just that it was, there were lots of ways in which they wanted to, fundamentally impact basic beliefs. I mean, if you think of the idea of Aryan su- superiority and the, and, the, and the greatness of the German race, well, what does that say about, you know, human fallenness? Um, and mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you cope with that, right? 
Hmm. You know, so one, so I'll give you an example. So what these pastors are, are talking about this, they're writing back and forth, they're friends in, a, in parishes, just in the countryside outside Berlin. And one of them writes the other and says, you know, this question of how do we preach now in this, in this environment? Because he says, if I preach that the German folk is fallen, well, then I'm going to have people angry at me because I'm denying the superiority of the Aryan race. But if I preach that the folk is, is great, well, then we lose the, the need for salvation in Christ. Right, right. I know what I'll do, he writes. He says, I'll preach this and see if you can follow. <laughs> he says, if, I'll preach that if people, if my parishioners are coming into the Nazi movement in their own strength, well, that's, that's a mistake. That's sinful. But if they come to, if they, if they have you know, robust faith in Jesus and they come to this through that faith, then it's good. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you how his, I'll tell you how his friend replies. His friend says, the fatherland stands above everything, just, it is, just as it has always been for us, even when naturally our conscience, bound to God and his word, speaks the final word. So in one sentence, he says, the fatherland stands above everything, but our conscience, bound by the word, stands above everything. He, he doesn't... There's no reconciling. Yeah. There's no... They're caught, right? They're caught in this dilemma yeah. of the problem of the, the universal problem of human sin and the need for salvation and their ministry as clergy in this situation where there's this powerful ideology that's driving this story of German greatness and German superiority and the Nazi movement, you know, as the keeper of all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hitler is this great leader, and, and there it really puts a pinch on them. I will say, they spend, the pastors spend unbelievably many hours talking with one another about what, it, about the relationship between folk and church, folk and faith. Huh. They just, they grapple with that over and over. And some, some uh, are all in. Right, so someone says, um, we need to see the total claim of God in the total claim of the state. Hmm. So the state becomes the state, God the state, in a sense. The state because... makes the total claim on us, makes, yeah. makes a claim of ultimate allegiance on us, hmm. and that is God. That's the claim of God. So God that, is using the state as an instrument. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Now, uh, so everything I'm hearing, uh, it, wouldn't there be a good expression of living an incarnated life through your culture? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's almost too easy to to point out what's wrong with all of this. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so what could could you paint a picture of what a positive incarnated culture? would look like to juxtapose with this <laughs> maybe the- <laughs> that's a big question <laughs> it's a big question <laughs> i 
yeah, that's well. I, like, okay, look, I'll put it this look, way: if you're if, asking, if you're asking, let's put it today. Not, yeah, let's put it in today's context. So, yeah. So okay, so I'm not, I'm not. So here I'm just speaking as a lay Christian, but when I read various passages in uh, in in many parts of the Bible, um, in the old the Old Testament message that through the children of Israel, all nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And there are these prophetic passages that, that, that discuss the return of, of God's people from different parts of the world, from Egypt, they'll come and from elsewhere, they'll come mm-hmm. or the revelation passages about all nations appearing um, or in the ministry of Jesus in say Luke or the message of acts where where the gospel is coming to all kinds of people, to the outsiders like the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. And, and, and clearly the story in Acts is the story of the gospel transcending the, the, the barriers uh, uh, between Jews and non-Jews and so on. So this, it's not that culture or ethnicity is obliterated. Right. It's that, it's that the gospel is for all peoples and all peoples somehow mysteriously come ultimately around the throne of god in their glory i mean it, it, revelation talks about the the is it the glory of the kings or something That's along right. that line yeah it's, they're it's, brought it's, into the new jerusalem yeah it's it's, yeah. it's 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 not that well yeah i guess they can come in it's no <laughs> it's like a pageant of cultures that is rich and beautiful so that's that's the that's my very rudimentary sort of theological take on that question but the problem is that in the Germany of the 1930s, that's not where theology is going. Mm, right. Right. So what's happening there is you have theologians. And so I'll use, I'll use a, a man named Paul Althaus as an example. He was one of the prominent theologians there were others like him, Werner Ehrlich, Ehrlich Emanuel Hirsch, uh, Friedrich Gogarten. Maybe a few of your listeners are into German theology. I don't know. Uh, more than me, probably. Um, but Althaus, he's not one of the worst uh, of these theologians. He's not as sold out to Hitler as some of them end up uh, being. He's conservative. Uh, um, uh, the historian Robert Erickson, who wrote about him, calls him a mediator. But the issue for these people, like Althaus, is what is the nature of revelation? Hmm. So for Karl Barth and all his followers, revelation is just in the word of God, right? God is revealed only in the word. And that means both Christ and the Bible, right? Hmm. Only in the word. But Althaus and others say, well, no, no, no. God is also revealed in nature, through, hmm. through nature, and by that, they don't only mean like mountains and fields and that kind of right. nature, but just the, the nature of existence, right? And so they, they get into a kind of a political theology that um, it's called the, the theology of the orders of creation. And so they argue that these orders of creation, like the family, the nation, the state, the racial community are actually 
expressions of divine revelation. They're created by God, and they, they bind us. They, they are the guide for us. We live in them, and we have to cultivate them, right? See, everything you're saying there, I'm like, yeah, I... Okay, yeah, because, you know, doesn't God speak to us through those things? (laughs) So, okay, so here's what it sounds like in in the 1930s. So there was, um, um, when the confessing church emerged, those Christians who were not necessarily anti-Nazi, but for sure against the Nazification of the church. When that group emerges, and they and they uh, uh, issue the Barman Declaration, which is a fairly famous document, sort of standing opposed to the Nazification of Christianity, um, Althausen and a few others issue a sort of an answer to that, um, called the Ansbach Council. And here's what they say. I'll read you just a little bit of it. Mm. So they say that um, God, the word of God addresses us as law and gospel. So this is Lutheran theology, law and gospel. And the gospel is the message of Christ. That's very straightforward. So here's what they say about the law. The law, namely the unchangeable will of God, confronts us in the total reality of our life as it's brought to light through the revelation of God. It binds each person to the station into which he's been called by God and Mm. obligates us to the natural orders to which we are subject, family, folk, race, that is blood relationships. And indeed we have been assigned to a particular family, a particular folk, a particular race. And as the will of God meets us always in our here and now, it binds us also to the particular historical moment of our family, our folk, our race, and so on. So like a destiny that, talk, yeah. With what? A destiny kind of a destiny. Yeah. And so with that, they go on to say, we thank the Lord God as believing Christians that he has gifted our folk in its time of crisis with a fewer as a pious and faithful ruler. And in the national socialist system of government, God wishes to give a good regiment, a regiment with discipline and honor. Hmm. You see, <laughs> that, that that view of the theology of orders of creation in the way that they were using it, what it does is it essentially ties them to say that what is happening historically in their time is of God. Right. And now, it, they yeah. didn't do, now, they didn't believe that during the Weimar era when the socialists were in charge. Right. But when, but when a conservative, like when the, these right-wing Nazis came to power, that was, that was God's will, right? So this theology of the orders of creation becomes really pernicious. <laughs> well, it, it strikes me like it, it lacks, um, well, a theology of the kingdom as Jesus preached it, of, of, of things being, I don't know, restored or, yeah. or brought together or made more whole. Like it's, it, I like, I'm, I have a so hard, like, what did they preach? Did they preach any words of Jesus? Cause I mean, well, I'm, being, I'm being kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. No, like, you, but how I don't understand. Well, you, you can do this and this, this is not that hard. You can do this. So, so let me give you, um, 
uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Where would be a good, oh, okay. So um, in, in Galatians, we read there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, all are one in Christ, right? Hmm. From what, the Rabbi Paul, yeah. What, the rabbi Paul. <laughs> From that rabbi. So, yeah. what, what do you, so what do you do with that? Well, the one, I mean, I've read uh, sort of a take on that from one of these clergymen and and basically his position was, well, that's a, that's a, they kind of go a, a, a law gospel or two kingdoms root with that and say, well, that is a spiritual concept that, that relates to heaven, but we still have male and female here today. We still have, right. like these distinctions are, are still here now. Right? right. And, you know, I, uh, or another example, um, um, the, the pastor who was pastoring in, in, a, in a town called Pirna in Saxony, and he was actually responsible for, a, for part of the parish in which one of the euthanasia killing centers was established during, during the, the beginning of the war when they began to uh, gas and cremate mentally ill, mentally handicapped uh, Germans. And um, just before that, he was discussing the idea of um, love for one another, brotherly love and so on, and was all for it, except he just confined it to the racial community. Right. Yeah. And then it fits wonderfully with sort of this idea of the Nazi Volksgemeinschaft, the, Nash, the sort of a racial community. Right. It's compartmentalizing or there's there's this first there's this dualism between you know the spiritual and the temporal or yeah yeah, this very i mean it's clever uh, but just so insidious so and and, i mean i one of the things that i'm i'm finding you know on facebook or you know yeah uh with what's happening in the united states right now is people are just incredulous like there's just there's just this total disconnect between how can they how can they even liken Jesus to this movement of you know Trumpism mm-hmm. uh, or whatever we want to call it and and so there's this complete and I think it's because there isn't really a really deep understanding of what those beliefs are. Um, Jesus is just kind of thrown around the same way that we use Hitler in arguments, you know, or just you're like Hitler, you know, the, yeah. the kind of a cheap kind of. Uh, yeah. So, so it's, it's really helpful to me to hear how those rationalizations are made mm-hmm. to make, um, to hold on to Christianity in one sense, oh, yeah. but, but really hold on to uh, empire and mm-hmm. Babylon, in the other hand, it's um, <laughs> really quite a yeah. And and I will say, particularly if you if 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 you were on the ground in 1933, mm-hmm. you you would understand. I mean, so for German clergy, I, I've mentioned a couple of times they were attracted to this. Mm-hmm. Hitler said things that led them to believe. So the Nazis were talking about a national renewal. Mm-hmm. 
Hitler made Hitler said things that made the pastors believe that he was calling them to come help him in a national and moral renewal. These two things, national renewal, moral renewal, intertwined. Yeah. That, and that they could help him renew Germany. So they would bring, in a sense, their spiritual resources to help with the national renewal. Mm-hmm. And all the more so since he was the great enemy of the godless communists. He had vanquished the communists. And so this was, and, and, and wanted to restore them, these pastors, to their, their place of prominence within, within the community. So in 1933, the Nazis, when they come to power, are stirring up. There's such a, such a surge of nationalism. And German nationalism was long tied to Lutheranism. And what happens is it actually looks like it's a catalyst for, for, um, for religious renewal, for spiritual renewal. So if you look in 1933, these in, in, in the one district, so I, my research is on three different church districts in different parts of Germany. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the one district in Saxony and in Pirna, in 19, uh, between 1932 and 33. New church memberships shot up 1,800%. Wow. <laughs> there were 4,000 new members came into the church. In 1933? Yeah. In that district. In one district with about 20 or 30 parishes. Then, in, in another area near Berlin called Nauen, um, you had record rates of church attendance, communion participation, new requests for church membership. You can track actually to the month that Hitler comes to power and and the movement of people withdrawing their official church membership and leaving the church dwindles to like to zero and new church memberships just surge. Well, praise the Lord. And and so you've got, so now you're a pastor in in, in Nazi Germany. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You've got record attendance. You've got record participation in communion. They kept that statistic. You've got record new re- requests for new memberships. You've got more church weddings than ever. You've got more baptisms than ever. And this is infant baptism, right? So many families coming with toddlers to be baptized and school-age children. What does that tell you? They've been out of the church. Now they're coming back and everybody's mm-hmm. getting baptized. Um volunteer fire departments, um, Nazi SA squadrons, they come to church in uniform, you know, en masse and march in together. The local military association says, hey, pastor, come do a church service for us. On the national holiday, the mayor says, hey, pastor, come and and pray and, and say some things at our big gathering. They absolutely, it, it looks like an absolute upsurge yeah. in, um, in 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 Western Christianity. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so how are you not going to be excited about that if you're a pastor? The yeah. allure would have been completely irresistible, right? Yeah. And but, and even even the temptation of, well, I don't like these aspects of it. We can fix that right. later. Yeah. We can we can fix that later. We can address those things 
in five years or exactly you know exactly so one so one pastor in 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 that Pirna district when I first started to research this you know I know about the German Christians those are the pro-Nazis I know about the confessing church and the and they're the, supposed to be the good guys here okay and I'm, and I'm I'm figuring out which pastors are in which group and one of the pastors in the good group he writes a letter to the to the district superintendent says hey i want to explain to you why i'm applying to join the nazi party and i'm like wait a minute i thought this guy was part of the pastor's emergency league and 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 he he is but what he's right he writes in this letter is i i don't want to let my i don't want to uh, sort of not do anything about not sort of um make a contribution um based on my uh, you know following up on my interest, my excitement about the new regime. And, and he says, what's important is I don't think that their position on spiritual matters is fully set yet. And I think if I get in, you know, people like me, we can help shape the movement. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they think that they can, they, I mean, millions of people misunderstood or and, and misjudged Hitler. The, like this guy's not alone, yeah. but but this belief that I can get in there and change this thing from the inside, not seeming to recognize sort of the fundamental structural evils mm-hmm. of it. And, mm-hmm. and it's early days. I mean, this is years from the Holocaust. Like this is yeah. the very early days of Nazi rule. Right. And so mm-hmm. maybe it can still be redirected. And yeah. Yeah, so there is very much Zach, that idea of, of, you know, trying to, trying to help from within wow that's okay i was that (laughs) like if we want to talk about these things so that we know what it is to live a a a faithful life (laughs) following christ that is a good thing to know a it's um what am i trying to say it's challenging stuff yeah and and no one is above not understanding it all. Do you know what I mean? No one's above. I would never do yeah. that. I like you. You can. Let me give you one word. Yeah. No, you shouldn't say no. no one because we're going to talk about Bonhoeffer. Well, yeah. <laughs> let, let me let me give you one more example first yeah. of, of of how easy this is. Yeah. Say how easy it is. So when I was researching in Berlin in 2005, uh, just serendipitously found out about a church uh, in the city, in the southern part of the city, called the Martin Luther Memorial Church. Mm. And this person I'd met knew I was researching on Christianity and Nazism and said, you need to see this church. It's like a Nazi church. And I'm like, what? So I go and I, I, I make an appointment with the pastor and I, and I, I go and, and uh, he, he tells me about it. And he, he, so it's a church that was built um, between 1933 and 35. And when you come into it, you come into the vestibule, there's um, uh, an iron cross chandelier with oak leaves. So traditional military and German national symbols. There were images of, of Hitler and Hindenburg, the two leaders on, on, on the, the walls. You come in and there's a huge triumphal arch at the front with 800 
one foot by one foot ceramic tiles. And these tiles have all kinds of images. They have images of alpha and omega and crown of thorns and doves and, 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 uh, and soldiers and SA and swastikas and yeah, and the symbol of the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization. And it's a mix of Christian, Nazi, and sort of general cultural symbols. Mm-hmm. Then you uh, maybe want to look at the baptismal font. It's a lovely carved baptismal font. On the front is Jesus and two children. The girl is bowed with her head praying, very submissive. The boy is reaching up to Jesus, which looks strangely like a Hitler salute. (laughs) On the one side of the font is a woman holding a child in her arms, very maternal, just like you would find in the Nazi women's propaganda magazines about having children. On the other side is the man, and he's wearing an SA uniform, and he is in prayer. So the ideal German family, the ideal Christian pious family is, is interwoven with the, with the Nazi imagery of the ideal family. Mm. Then the pulpit is a carved, you know, these raised pulpits, the carved uh, sort of balcony kind of pulpit. The commission was for a pulpit that would have the view of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So it's going to be Jesus and lots of people, right? Mm. And But then the people turn out to be workers and aristocrats and women and men and soldiers and members of the Hitler Youth and the SA. And what what is supposed to be the Sermon on the Mount is actually also an, a perfect image of the Nazi Volksgemeinschaft, the vision of the Nazi society, the racial society. And then finally, we go to the crucifix, which um, in the church, in these German Christians, when they reject, when they reject the Jewishness of the Bible and so on, many of them also pick up on racial theories and they start speculating and they ask the question, well, was Jesus really Jewish? Right. And they come to the conclusion that no, he probably wasn't. Right. And so because Jewish Jesus was the enemy of the Jews, he's always, you know, after them and Jew that's to be a the suffering crucified, that's weak. Mm-hmm. We, Jesus is heroic. And so if you look at this crucifix, you can look this up on the web if you want to find it. It's the Martin Luther Memorial Church. The crucifix is he's absolutely ripped. It's this muscular, <laughs> heroic, defiant Jesus on the cross. Wow. So you have, so I, I mean, my jaw was down around my knees when right. I saw this. The pastor says to me, oh, you know what? We wanted to build a church in those days. And it was the consistory, the church authorities that made us do this. So a few years later, to make a long story short, a few years later, I wanted to find out. And so I came back to Berlin and I went to the archives and I started looking up, what's the story there, there, what was the kind of the, the plot that got the Nazi church built? Right. And it turns out that the local pastor, who was not a German Christian, he was just a regular guy, mm-hmm. and his church committee and his parish, his, his church board, and the building committee, 
they just set out to build a church and they actually they actually made a plan to to strip out the ornamentation then they put it back in it's a, it's a long story it was a, a sort of a budget thing mm. and when they went to get those ornamental tiles the company that supplied churches in those days sent some drawings of of possible choices and they chose them and they got official artists to help them commission the pulpit and the baptismal font and so on and all of these decisions were made locally by the parish building community building committee and the board and there's never once any suggestion that like what they're doing, like, there's no evidence that they that, that that there was any thought that this was in any way sort of controversial or strange. Right. It's what happened when you built a church in 1933. Wow. So, when you, so from hindsight, you would go into that building. If you or I went into that building, you'd say, what in the world are they doing here? Right. And it turns out to have been a pretty natural development with people who are just living in their moment, right, in their cultural place, in their their incarnated <laughs> version of Christianity. <laughs> oh, so, so go ahead, Jackie. Well, I was going to say, I don't know if we want to move on from from that yet, but I, it does make me ask. So then, when people did see it, right, yeah. in any move in history, you have. You know, there are yeah. some people who knew slavery was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Slaves. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, yeah. there are yeah. only people who know, yeah, no. have a different moral compass, not compass, or just, yeah. So what yeah. was it when some people could could say, no, this is not right? Why? What was it in their thinking, in their understanding? Can you, can we know that? Or just from what they've said? Oh, that's a good, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. And there are. So, what I've what I've given you is kind of this this horrible picture. I'm sorry. It but, is horrible. Yeah, but, but it, it is. Um, it, it was very much. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you the run of the mill story. It's this is the common. Mm-hmm. I mean the 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 churches were deeply implicated in the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, even the, even the even the governments. So, the Nazi Party makes everybody who wants to hold positions and so on fill out certificates proving their Aryan ancestry, right? They're all in this, like they're always getting um, party member, you know, Nazi party members or members of the SS and so on. And, and you know how they prove their Aryan ancestry. They go to the parish and their pastor uses the baptismal records and, and says, yeah, your grandparents were baptized you come from German stock. So the, uh-huh. the churches were, were involved in, in <laughs> racial policy. They were involved in many aspects of the regime. Some of the churches, when, when, during the war, when there were slave laborers from Eastern Europe working in Germany, churches and bus- just like other businesses, churches would phone the local labor exchange and say, we need some people to clean the church, and they would send them slave laborers. Wow. So the churches, this is the norm. The churches were deeply implicated in so many ways, but there were, but there were people, you know, there are, and there was space 
there were in, in, in some cases, for instance, there were raging battles within these rural parishes mm. over what kind of pastor to hire. Mm. And often, uh, actually, uh, people in the confessing church who did not want Nazism in their parish were able to mobilize themselves, um, protest when German Christian candidates came and get, and get themselves a pastor that they wanted from the confessing church. Mm -hmm. There were some pastors who, sp who spoke out at times and said, no, um, you know, uh, 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 racial identity, that's not Christian identity. You, you may be born into the folk, but you're, but you're, you're saved into Christianity. And, and another one, I saw a note one time, you know, there's a leader who is above uh, Adolf Hitler, and that's Jesus mm -hmm. Christ, you know, so that, you know, and there was actually space, it's not like everyone who said something like that got hauled off, mm -hmm. or anything like that, there was some space um, to sort of make statements like that, not maybe, not maybe directly attacking the regime, but at least sort of trying to carve out a space for the church that was not infiltrated by Nazism, but that was very, very hard to do. Wow, it's a good transition for Bonhoff to, to Dietrich sure. Bonhoeffer. Um, in that, the you know, in what he describes in this essay, uh, which I'll, maybe I'll get you to introduce as well. Um, but what he, he describes in this essay is people and approaches and attitudes that would build a church like what you've described, and um, kind of slip very easily and are tempted very easily to um i guess power and empire and um exclusion and you know th those sort of uh nasty things well many folks are at least a little bit acquainted with dietrich bonhoeffer the young young german theologian uh who um brilliant brilliant uh theologian from a very young age came out of a, a, a well-to-do bourgeois family, not a terribly religious family, but he himself had this call to, to study theology and to do ministry as well. He, as a young theologian and clergyman, spent some time abroad in, in Spain and in the United States and in England at different times, um, was not... Uh, was not a terribly significant figure within the German church struggle. He's much better known now after the fact. Mm. He was involved um, with the confessing church uh, some. He was involved in ecumenical work internationally a little bit during that time. And eventually he also became involved in the resistance. So he, he knew people... Um, like his brother-in-law, Hans von Donanyi, who was in the justice ministry, helped Bonhoeffer get a position in the, in the Abwehr, the military intelligence uh, department, which was also a center of anti-Nazi activity, of, of conspiracy. And so he, he worked there some uh, as well and, um, and became involved and kind of a moral support for... Um, people in the military and you might say among the aristocracy, the sort of elites of Germany, 
um, who were interested in potentially overthrowing Hitler. All that was dragging on. And by the end of 1942, which is when Bonhoeffer writes this essay after 10 years, mm. he's writing it to, to his brother-in-law, Don Agni, uh, to his good friend, Eberhard Betke, who went on to become his sort of keeper of his legacy and his biographer and so on. He's writing it to another friend who was in the military. And he's, these are close, close, these are people with whom he has deep trust. These are people with whom he's had the most sort of uh, intense and, and important discussions over the years and walked with. And he asks himself essentially, um, what's come of us? Like, where are we at mm. after 10 years? This is essentially, the, and, and it's, it's a series of 17 um, points or sort of meditations kind of woven one after one, mm. one leads kind of to another. Um, as he puts it, uh, conclusions about human experience mm. is what he calls them. And he's sort of, in a sense, he's, he's reflecting and he's asking, and he's trying to capture, after 10 years, where are we at? What's come of us? What, what can we say about ourselves? Right. Um, what is the reality of our situation? I mean, it's really, um, I mean, when you read it, it's, it's very gripping. It's, it's really... Um, right to the heart of the matter stuff. It's, it's, there's nothing peripheral about this. It's, it's core issues all the way through. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are a lot. Um, in, in reading it this afternoon, I was uh, gripped. <laughs> it's <laughs> quite, it's, it's so remarkable. Um, I have a lot of uh, asterisks. Um, I, I think the favorite quote I had, because um, he talks, he talks about responsibility very yes. early on, and it and that responsibility kind of yes. carries through the whole essay. Yeah, um, you know, here's why men, and he uses men typically, you can say yeah. men and women, um, but he said, here's why men have shirked their responsibility, and yeah. he'll he'll talk about something. But this quote, um, the ultimate question for a responsible man to ask is not how he is to extricate himself yeah. heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation is to yeah. live. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's this, you know, I wrote there incarnational futurism, like it's this, yeah. like thinking like, what, what are we to become as a result of my actions? Yeah. Um, more yeah. than like the here and now or the immediate and he sorry and he even says right after that like it's much easier to see something from the point of view of an abstract principle yeah and then something concrete like yeah. something right in front of you yeah yeah mm. yeah no, this, i mean <laughs> this does get us now towards the theme of your podcast because mm -hmm. bonhoeffer is yeah he, this is very much about real life he is um an, an incarnated faith he is not 
So, so he, he begins this, this, you find, you see this right at the beginning. He begins this by asking these questions, like, like he, he says, uh, you know, ha, have there ever been people in history who in their time, like us had so little ground under their feet, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, people who every option seemed wrong to them, unbearable to them. Who are looking for strength, you know, how did other generations of responsible thinkers feel? Did they feel like we do? And then he says, who is it that stands firm? And he lists all kinds of different people, people who want to be reasonable and people who want to be kind of ethically fanatical and who want to focus on their conscience or on duty or on their freedom of action uh, or on their individual virtue. And, and, he, and he says in the end of all that, he says, who stands firm? Mm. He says, only the one whose ultimate standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, freedom, or virtue. Only the one who is prepared to sacrifice those in faith and in relationship to God alone. He's called to obedient and responsible action. Mm. Such a person is the responsible one whose life is nothing but a response to God's question and call. You know, where are these people? He says, where are these responsible ones? You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just about how do I follow God mm-hmm. in the circumstances of my life that I find myself, that we find ourselves, he's writing to his close friends here. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that, and then, and then just, and that, that sort of leads in mm-hmm. to that quote that, that you were mentioning, Zach, because he, he, he's discussing success and the, and the, the, the sort of the, what happens when, 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 you know, a new successful movement comes in history. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and we can't just afford to want to, to, to view that sort of neutrally especially when success seems to be bound up by with evil. And that's where he starts talking about co-responsibility. The idea of, 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 um, he says, we desire to be those who are co-responsible for the shaping of history. And this is where he says, yeah, you can go down heroically. You can stand on your principles and be a hero, but that's actually not very heroic. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually, and this is that 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 this is that um, um, that that quote. The ultimately responsible question is not how I extricate myself heroically from a situation, but how a coming generation is to go on living. How do that, I how do I work within the impossible constraints of my situation, even uh-huh. when, as in Nazi Germany, for him there were so few options. Right. Yeah. Rather than sort of take some heroic stand or or retreat into some kind of inner emigration or something he says how do we move forward how do we live and and take responsible action in that in that context you use the word unmoored uh to describe the church uh after world war one yeah um and that could be tied you know un you know kind of loss of ground or um ungrounding um, that tie, that link to mm-hmm. the divine, that link to God um, living through us. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, I wonder lots of things about this. 
But I wonder like how much of their faith was tied more to uh, state church, the uh, throne and altar before World War I, as opposed, you know, in, as opposed to God, you know, and I, I can't stand in judgment. Um, but then, okay, they lost that mooring. And, yeah. and yet, you know, even that state church might may have had some good, I mean, there must have been some good. Oh, sure. But I mean, that that grounding and the kind of like shaking off of the scales on your eyes to see what reality actually looks like. Yeah. Like, ah, it's... Well, he, well, he says, he says in that section on success that, you know, as long as the good is successful, we can afford the luxury of thinking of success as ethically yeah. irrelevant. What yes. he's saying is, hey, if the old throne and altar arrangement is working fine, yeah, um, we don't have to actually um think about it very much and (laughs) and but but now it's an issue now we've got to see that this is an issue well that sorry that totally leads right to that the last paragraph in here is the view from below so if everything's Uh, working fine then we don't need to ask the questions but it's not working fine and he sees that because he's viewing this from the bottom yeah and and that does through suffering yeah, through suffering. Yeah. That remind. So I've just read um, Howard Thurman's Jesus um, uh, of the Disinherited. Um, so basically saying the same thing, like you can talk mm. about Jesus when everything's fine and that'll look yeah. a certain way. But when you're talking from someone who has their backs against the wall, so the, yeah. well, the, the Black experience in America, mm-hmm. when they're talking about Jesus, it's a really different Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Feels yeah. different, sounds different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I'm that is striking to yeah. me. Is is that yeah. what made him able to see that suffering, able to see something else? Different? Yeah, I, yeah. There's no question that there's no question that that finding themselves on the outside, finding themselves um, mm. under intense pressure, yeah, under what we would surely call persecution. Um, uh, with no power, uh, very vulnerable, um, especially, especially, you know, once after this, once, um, Bonhoeffer is arrested and, and he, he's, um, yeah. And then eventually implicated, uh, in connection with the conspiracy and and very close to the end of the war he is executed he's right um so yeah he th- they are very much on the on the underside here yeah yeah it's yeah i you know this this there's so much in this essay mm-hmm. um well, well we're going to make all of our listeners read it so but we have to talk about stupidity ollie we have to talk about stupidity yes so i will say and we've talked about what we're seeing in our days today but like it's very hard not to things into it but as a historian can you help me with that is it should i not well i yeah this i think this is my well, this might be my favorite section in here. I, it, I, it's just so, yeah, it feels like it was written a few months ago. Right. Um, so 
So there's this section in this essay called On Stupidity. That's mm-hmm. uh, Maybe you've got a different translation, but that's what it's called. In yours? In, yeah, it says of folly. No, mine. no. It's on stupidity. Okay. And uh, so I'll read you. I'll read you bits of mine. And he is, you have to understand, he's not talking about being dumb. Like he's not talking about cognitive, like something, somebody who's like just not very bright. Right. He, he's, he, he's, he says stupidity is more dangerous than, than, than malice. Uh, you know, we can protest against evil. We can stop evil. Evil actually, as we saw before, evil carries within itself the germ of its destruction. It's, it, you know, it, but he says against stupidity, we're defenseless. We can't protest it. We can't force against it. We can't use reason. It, facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed, he writes. In such ways, the stupid person becomes critical, and even facts, and when facts are irrefutable, they're just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. And, and he talks about the, the, the quote-unquote stupid person being self-satisfied, being irritated, going on the attack. And he says, never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons for it's senseless and dangerous. Mm. But then he says, okay, he sort of explains what he means by, the, by, by this idea of stupidity. And he says, it's not a cognitive defect. It's mm. actually more a sociological thing. If you think of the, the crowd theory or something like that, uh-huh. he says, every strong upsurge of power in the public sphere, be it a political or religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with stupidity. And what he's saying is people under the overwhelming impact of this rising power people lose their inner independence. They, they, he says they more or less consciously give up their autonomy and they just sort of fall in behind this powerful force, whether it's political or religious. Obviously, he's thinking about Nazism in his, in his day, right? And the point is they're no longer independent. He says, and this is probably what you were thinking of, Jackie, he says, in conversation with him, with the stupid person in conversation with him one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person but with slogans catchwords and the like that have taken possession of him he is under a spell blinded misused and abused in his very being and then he goes on to say and this person can become uh used for evil quite easily and and he says we can't actually stop this there's no hope for an inner liberation of this person who's been so bewitched by this upsurge in power until there's an external liberation. So until that power source that is so um, overcoming them and making them quote unquote stupid, in other words, just mindlessly following or parroting slogans and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and disbelieving obvious facts and all this sort of thing. There's no hope for those persons to change until that external force that has them captive is mm-hmm. until they're released from that. And then the spell, yeah. Then that spell the spell is broken and there's hope for a liberation. And I, that is powerful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, powerful. 
there, there are two things that I want to comment on. One, it, I mean, because of the title on mine, I immediately drew, because it talks about folly and the fool yeah. instead of stupid. And I was like, oh, and Jesus says, you know, don't yeah. call people fools. I mean, it, it is the biblical I mean, foolishness. Yeah. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the, uh, the idea. So I can't, there's no use in yeah. even calling them a fool but seeing them as humans under a spell yeah. is much more helpful. Yeah. And, and, and then I can pray for them. I can yeah. love them. I can uh, reach out a human hand knowing that I might have to wait a while yeah. <laughs> before, before their spell is broken. And, and Bonhoeffer is all about the long game. I mean, he realizes that none of this stuff might, this might not happen very quickly. And, and the next section, actually, right after that, is a reminder that we can't go holding people in contempt. Mm. If, we, if we just think of people that, that we, this, that these people that we think are stupid or that kind of moral foolishness that we read about in Proverbs, right? Yeah. It's like that. Um, and if we think of them with contempt, we're just like you know, in his case, we're just like those Nazis that hold humans in contempt mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, and do all these horrible things to them. So we can't, we can't fall prey to that, that temptation to hold them in contempt. So that, that, that thinking about, okay, that, that realization that they're really captivated by this upsurge in power, and that's just human frailty. And, and, um, Eventually, hopefully, they'll be released from the spell, and 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 things can come right again, kind of thing. It, it's interesting because today we we don't, you know, you'd never hear someone call some fool, but you will hear them call them a Nazi. So it's interesting that the language has flipped. Yeah. If I were to, you know, if Bonhoeffer was yeah. writing today, he might say the Nazi, you know, <laughs> and you know the Nazi is under a spell, and yeah. you know. Um, well that's certainly I mean that's certainly what he was thinking of right he's thinking Mm -hmm. of these people who've been within the German Christian movement say or just within the Nazi movement in general who've just been captivated by this ideology and and um, lose their their proper vision of what humanity is about but he does think that this will eventually undo itself right I mean he's this section on imminent justice is all about, you know, eventually, um, you know, the laws of human, you know, the, the sort of the way God's created the world that will eventually, it'll come right. Uh, oh. And, um, and, um, you know, those movements that pursue evil, eventually that runs its course that just, that just has a limited shelf life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says the world is in fact so ordered that the fundamental ordering, honoring of life's basic laws and rights, uh, you know, serves for self-preservation. It, things will come right over time. But, but this is a real venture of faith, you know, in, in the circumstances that he is in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, in, so I have the, this, this is my copy of it. So I have the same of folly. And I've yep. had it for years and I, I, I've gotten most into it this week. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've, I've dipped in every now and then, but I'm now I'm, there's a bit more context and I'm understanding more. Yeah. But he says, so this was written July 21st, 1944. So I'm thinking that's just a few months before 
So this so is he was he was arrested in in April of of forty three, mm-hmm. and then um, he's executed just uh, before the end of the war in um, April 9th of oh, April ninth nineteen forty five. I just okay. forgot the exact date, but it's April. 9th. Okay, so so in that last year, this is what he wrote, and so this is what gets me thinking about this incarnate faith, and I love how he ends it. So he, he writes. I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it's only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. Mm-hmm. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether a saint or a churchman or a righteous man yeah. or an unrighteous one. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, failures, experiences, perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. That is metanoia. That's how one becomes a man and a Christian. Yeah. And then he writes just a little bit later, may God in his mercy lead us through these times, but above all, may he lead us to himself. Yeah. Which, yeah. 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 He, he, you know, as he goes through, as he's in prison and, you know, you're reading from later, later, later on near his death in, in the letters and papers from prison. As, and, and, you know, by the time he's writing the passage you've read, he, he's, he's fairly clear on, on, on what's happening and where he's, mm. where he's going to end up. And, but you already see that here in, in the after 10 years piece too, where he, he has these exp- these tremendous expressions of faith in what God will do. You know, uh-huh. he says, "I believe that God can and will let good come out of everything, even the greatest evil." Mm. And and he, he talks about God giving the strength to resist. You know, just when we need it, um, and, mm. and 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 we can overcome fear of the future, and and even our mistakes. He says. I believe that even our mistakes and shortcomings are not in vain and that it is no more difficult for God to deal with them than with our supposedly good deeds. <laughs> like he is so rooted in the reality of life, in the frailty of people. Yeah. The fact that, that, that there's this, this mix of good and evil at work and, and not only around us, but in and in us and, and we are, and he has this tremendous sense of how compromised the German people and he himself as part of that mm-hmm. are just simply because they are living in this under this regime, even though it's not their will, their choice, they're still so caught up and compromised by it. And 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 he just he just this 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 suffering, right? He, he says, um, Christ withdrew from suffering until his hour had come, and then he walked toward it in freedom, took hold, and overcame it. Mm. And he says, certainly we are not Christ, <laughs> nor are we called to redeem the world through our own deed and our own suffering. We are not to burden ourselves with impossible things and torture ourselves with not being able to bear them. But mm. we are not Christ. But... If we want to be Christians, it means that we are to take part in Christ's greatness of heart in the responsible action that in freedom lays hold of the hour 
and faces the danger. Mm. And in the true sympathy that springs forth, not from fear, but from Christ's freeing and redeeming love for all who suffer. Wow. Amen. You know, and, and I'll he say knows. praise the Lord to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he understands, like we can't, he says, we, we can't, we can't take for granted. We can plan for the future. Mm-hmm. I, that really spoke to me just in our current circumstances. Yeah. Like we, we can't necessarily plan and, and we just have to take each day as it comes. But, and he's so optimistic in this. He wants to keep trying to still work to change the world. And it's, it's, <laughs> But he, but he does, as you said, Jackie, at the end of this, he comes back to the view from the bottom and suffering. Mm-hmm. And he's asking, are we of any use? You know, we have seen, we've been, this fam- the famous quote, maybe people, even if they d- don't know after 10 years, they may have heard the quote, we've been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We become cunning and learned, learned the arts of obfuscation and equivocal speech and, and so on and so forth. And, and he's saying, we have been worn down. We've been compromised. We've been, we're implicated. Are we still of any use? And he, and his conclusion is, we don't need geniuses. We don't need cynics. We don't need people who have got contempt for others. We don't need cunning people. We need simple, uncomplicated, and honest human beings. Mm. And and he, he ends with that idea again of responsibility and entering into suffering, yeah. um, following Christ in that way. Wow. Yeah. Our recording today has been done online from our homes. Music graciously provided by Jennifer Oikawa. Check out Escape Plan to Canada by the Jen Oikawa Trio. One thing we'd like to develop more of is a conversation with our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on Instagram at the Podcast Made Flesh, no spaces, or on Facebook. Like our page and follow us. Get all our updates. <laughs>